If we walk far enough, says Dorothy, we shall sometime come to some place. Whether it was singing somewhere over the rainbow or following your own yellow brick road, The Wizard of Oz is still referenced with great affection to this day. It's hard to imagine that filming this seminal film was anything but happy and magical, and yet sadly, it seems there is more than one dark moment during this film's production back in the late 30s. Ever since it premiered back in 1939, rumors have circulated about the making of the film, including the fate of the first Tin Man and a possible suicide on set. The paranormal aftermath. Does the ghost of Judy Garland haunt some of the places where she was her happiest? We also take a quick haunted tour of downtown Culver City as we talk about the haunted Munchkin Hotel and the Culver Studios. What specters still roam around the grounds and hallways of both famous buildings? So get ready as we take a walk down the yellow brick road and into the haunted forest. In episode 20, we go back in time to learn the dark secrets and history of the Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. There's no place like Hollyweird. We're the Grave Girls from Grave Girls Podcast. I'm your host, Hawthorne. And I'm Amaryllis. Every week we watch a different horror film, and I find a scary story that goes with it that will definitely leave you shaking in your boots. And if you aren't wearing boots, my true crime case and murder will scare the pants off you. And then you'll just be naked, and that's just, that's just a fun time. So listen to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget to check out our website at grave-girls.com. We love you all in case we die. Bye! Hey, boo, hey! Boo. Boo. (laughs) What's going on, guys? Are you ready to grab your basket? Uh, Set your hair in pigtails, grab little Toto, and hop, skip, and jump away. I would say that I'm always ready for that. I know, that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm always ready. Hello. Hey guys, welcome to Hollywood Paranormal. We are a Hollywood true crime and paranormal podcast based out of Los Angeles, California, ooh, ooh. aka L-A, E-L-L-A-Y. I'm doing the finger symbols as we speak. <laughs> no one can see it. So we have a lot in store for you guys today. With mm-hmm. great anticipation, with excitement, we are yes. going to be talking about one of the biggest, most historical, famous movies of mm-hmm. all time. Literally. I think I saw that it was ranked eighth on the top most influential movies of all oh, time. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. might even be a little high. I think it was even higher, but <laughs> who knows? We're going to be talking about The Wizard of Oz. Yes. This was one hell of a film, mm-hmm. but what people do don't know or really never like looked into was the fact that there are a lot of dark secrets and history behind this film uh-huh. it's a lot of weird and bad juju that went on mm-hmm. a lot of rumors yes that we will definitely touch on yes 
And we will definitely touch on the paranormal aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Are there Judy Garland ghosts, baby gum ghosts? Could be. If you listen to our introduction, we will be talking about Culver City, yes. downtown Culver City, and the famous Munchkin Hotel or the Haunted Munchkin Hotel. Oh, there's so many words in that sentence that I find <laughs> terrifying. Ooh. Haunted Munchkin. Love so it. we'll be touching on that as well as Culver Studios. So that place is also haunted as fuck. Yeah, we'll be touching on that as well. So if you're a Chihuahua with ADD and you want to time jump through all the good tea, go right ahead. But you'll be (laughs) missing out on a lot of crazy stuff that Mm -hmm. occurred behind the camera. And we'll definitely be touching on baby gum Judy Garland herself mm-hmm. and the abuse that these studios really bestowed on not only her, but other actresses and actors and their crew members. Mm-hmm. And we'll also touch on the studio system. Ugh, yes, we will. Oh, we have a lot to discuss, guys. Yeah. We have a lot to talk about. So let's get started. Let's do it. Let's do it. In order to begin, guys, we need to go back. We need to go all the way back to Chicago on May 17th. 1900. The George M. Hill Company publishes L. Frank Baum's children's novel, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. The story chronicles the adventures of a young farm girl named Dorothy in the magical land of Oz after she and her pet Toto are swept away from their Kansas home by a cyclone. Now, the novel is one of the best-known stories in American literature and has been widely translated. And development began when Walt Disney Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in 1937 showed that mm. films adapted from popular children's stories and fairy tale folklore could be successful Mm -hmm. now in january of 38 mgm bought the rights to l frank Baum's hugely popular novel from samuel goldwyn who had toyed with the idea of making the film as a vehicle for his guy eddie Cantor, who was under contract to the goldwyn studios and whom goldwyn wanted to cast as the scarecrow Mm -hmm. oz's film producer melvin Leroy had always insisted that he wanted to cast the new and young Judy Garland to play Dorothy for from the very beginning. However, evidence suggests that negotiations occurred early in pre-production for Shirley Temple to be cast as Dorothy mm-hmm. as loan because they weren't people; they were property. Yeah, let's put a pin in this little. This oh is yeah, the, I think the first. We're gonna minute. touch yeah. on this. So just keep this in the back of your mind. Keep this highlighted <laughs> on your cliff notes. Just be thinking of little mm-hmm. Shirley Temple. Little Shirley Temple was not. Shirley Temple, she was just proper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your eye is twitching so much. Yeah, just the way that this is phrased is so like telling. Oh, like, oh, oh, we could get her on oh, loan. Oh, yeah, you want, it gets better. So she was on loan from 20th Century Fox Girl. A persistent rumor also existed that Fox, in turn, was going to raise um, a Clark Gable and we might add a Gene Harlow as a loan from MGM. Oh, boy. Yeah, the tale is almost uncer- certainly untrue as Harlow did die. Um, I think it was due to appendicitis in mm-hmm. 1937 before MGM even purchased yeah. the rights to the story. However, um, this was the name of the game back then. They yeah. were on loan, and we'll go into that very shortly yeah. as to why that is. I think part of what happened is that, and we will definitely talk about this as we move forward, mm-hmm. but if you, and we, we, you know, how many times we talk about this, mm-hmm. but if you start thinking about the time period of oh, this, yeah. so in 1930s money, these numbers that we're going to start talking about in terms of production budget and what it would be a failure by today's standards but when you translate the money it would be star wars level avengers level like that's how big this movie will go on to become as a financial just the numbers alone 
but you don't see that in pre-production, right? No. And so as the budget starts creeping up towards that $3 million mark, that's literally nothing. You could not make a feature today for $3 million. Oh, like, absolutely not. Zero. Barely an indie film. Barely. And Barely. so as it was starting to creep higher and higher, the studio started getting very nervous. And that's why they started thinking about attaching Shirley Temple because she was such a name. Whereas mm -hmm. Judy Garland was insanely talented and the director always wanted her. Mm -hmm. But they like kind of shopped around the idea hoping like, well, maybe some star power. And he kind of like shut that down. Yes. Because she was so good. He's like, no, oh, it has to be her. You are 100% true. Judy was eventually casted yes. over Temple because the execs felt that Temple was a little too young mm -hmm. and she didn't have the singing chops. No. She couldn't. Judy... Uh, had the voice. Mm -hmm. She was a powerhouse. Whenever she would be in rehearsals in the studios, people would stop to listen to this girl sing and rehearse. Mm -hmm. They stopped in their track because her voice was such uh, mm -hmm. a powerhouse. Yeah. And it's what it was like the antidote to complete the character yeah. of Dorothy Gale. Now, Ray Bolger was originally casted as the Tin Man, and mm -hmm. Buddy Epson was to play the Scarecrow, but they had their roles swapped. So eventually, Bolger was the Scarecrow, and Epson ended up to play the Tin Man. Bert Lahr was the perfect fit for Cowardly Lion, and an extensive talent search produced over a hundred little people to play Munchkins for the Munchkinland mm -hmm. segment. Now, Gale Sundergaard was originally casted as the Wicked Witch. Mm -hmm. She became unhappy when the witch's persona shifted from sly and glamorous, thought to emulate the Wicked Queen in Disney Snow White and the Seven Dwarves into the familiar ugly hag. Yeah. <laughs> she turned down the role and was replaced immediately on October 10th, 1938, just three days before filming started by MGM contract player and head boss witch Margaret Hamilton. What a G. What a G. She is a G, and we'll explain why she is such an OG in this and why she's such a powerhouse and such a tough cookie, but a little, like, story time. Mm. When I was in... <laughs> oh, my God. Are we getting ready to tell the same story? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. You know, I know. You're twinsies. About to, yeah, twinsies. you're about to blow my mind. A am I? Go for it. All right, great. Here we go. When I... Okay, so get this. When I was in grad school, and, and we still face this, mm -hmm. too, at our job, all right? We were doing Sweeney Todd, and I was the assistant calling Musha, who is a OG Broadway mm -hmm, costume designer. Mm -hmm. So um, they made me head of hair and makeup to help design hair and makeup for the show because we didn't have anyone in that department that wanted to take that position. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of my research was um, inspired by Goya's dark paintings because we had this essence of like making everyone look dark and dirty. Wow. So Mrs. Lovett in the very beginning has to look very, you know, dirty, old, tired, haggard. And the girl that we casted as Mrs. Lovett, gorgeous. Of course. Gorgeous. And thanks, thanks grad school. We, yes. We had a makeup workshop. Everyone got the gist of the whole design except for her. Of course. Every time I would come to her booth, I'm like, so um, why do you still look pretty? Oh, I just, you know, I just added, did everything you said. I'm like, no, 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 no. I would go in, draw the lines. She looked tired, old, and haggy. So the first dress rehearsal, I kind of get barked at because they're like, why does Mrs. Lovett look beautiful? I'm like, look, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I did what I could. I think she erased my work. I think she made herself a little more clean to the point where, like, the director, uh. oh, yeah, the director, the head of costumes, 
and myself, we all had to have a meeting with her. Like, you have to follow the guidelines of my design. Like, this is the vision of the director. Like, if you can't do this, then we're going to have to figure something out. This is one of my biggest, <laughs> biggest pet peeves. Young actresses. Yeah. And some actors, too. Young thespians that are, may or may yes. not be listening. If you... Take notes. Say the words... I don't look cute in this. I'm going to throw something at you. That's the deal that we are verbally agreeing to right now. Because the only thing that you should be saying mm -hmm. to any designer, as a young baby actor, as any actor, I don't care who you are, is this doesn't fit for this movement, say, if you're doing some stage combat, you're like, my boob's gonna pop out, I'm yeah. gonna split these seams, that's an appropriate thing to bring up. It doesn't fit, it's too big, it's too loose. Not to make you look sexy, but actual fit, that's an appropriate thing you could bring up. Mm -hmm. If you say, this isn't the vision that the director, and the director should be saying that, but fine, that's a little thin ice, but okay. If you say the words, I don't look cute in this, <laughs> no. No, 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 no. That is not on the list right. of what's important when it comes to your costume, your makeup. Mm -hmm. I don't care. There was a woman that I went to school with uh, in Indiana, and she did that every single show. Didn't matter the time period. Same thing. Very beautiful, really talented. And we had a non-existent theater department. It was just like us yeah. coming together and if we put a show on, then they would let us do it. You took responsibility on roles that Wait, you there was no theater department exactly. Yeah. And so she every time she was always cast as like the ingenue. We had like literally a person for every role mm -hmm. because it was so small. So she was always the ingenue. She was very talented. If she's listening, I'm really sorry because I'm going to throw you under the bus. <laughs> uh, and every single show, she'd be like, I just don't, I don't look that good in this. And it's like, yeah, that's really <sighs> My not eyes the cannot thing. Roll <laughs> yeah. It was, that's very, very frustrating. Get yeah. your Mrs. Lovett makeup on and be happy yeah, about right. it. Yeah. Well, fortunately, we had a director who was like, mm -hmm. no bullshit. Like, Love it. Yeah, you're gonna have to come out looking like this, or else we're gonna cast someone else. Mm -hmm. Did she end up doing it? Um, yes. And then, sadly, towards like it was like a week of production, and toward like the last stint of shows, mm. like you can kind of tell like she was testing the waters. I'm like, now she looks like she's just you know beautifully hungover. Like I she just don't <laughs> like this. Woman. I just. I know, and this is just a common occurrence in, mm -hmm. in the industry, but Charlize Theron, Halle Berry, they are beautiful actresses that have Nicole won, Kidman. exactly, that have won Oscars for their performances in Monster, Monster's Ball, yeah, yeah, The Hours, mm -hmm. come on. If you are a beautiful woman, put a prosthetic nose on and get it, that Oscar. Mm -hmm. Gain those 50 pounds. Ooh, Girl. I mean, if you have the opportunity to gain weight, like, wait. I don't have to watch what I'm eating. Mm -hmm. I need to gain weight for this role. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So it's funny because we really were getting ready to tell the same story. Obviously, I didn't go to grad school. <laughs> but they. But it's the same tune in theater, right? Oh, yeah. And I remember I was watching a documentary, like all good gay boys do, about <laughs> the making of The Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. And there was an interview with... Uh, with Gail. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and she's talking about it, And they basically had to like trick her to sign on because they did like exactly what you're saying Snow White was so in everyone's conscious yeah. at that time 
they really told her it's going to be this like glamorous you're going to be like in this beautiful black gown Mm -hmm. and they like low-key trick her and then she shows up and they like slap that nose on she didn't know she was going to be green oh yeah so it it then becomes like super abusive because like Mm -hmm. if they ever try and pull that on you walk away get your agent or your manager to like call them and tell them that it's like a no deal right but at the time this just happened all the time like yeah. you know this what I mean common occurrence common like, occurrence sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry but yeah so she like shows up ready to be this like beautiful glamorous like witch queen mm-hmm. and she gets like this nose and this green makeup and they're like okay rolling um <laughs> this is not in my contract insane <laughs> oh god yeah but Hamilton she was like just slap it on me and yeah. I'll just do the work now, filming commenced October 13th of 1938 on the MGM lot in Culver City, California, under the direction of Richard Thorpe, per, like replacing Norman Tarog, mm-hmm. who filmed the early Technicolor tests. Now, soon he was replaced temporarily by George Kukar, who was mm-hmm. finally replaced by the infamous Victor Fleming, known for his direction on the famous movie Gone with the Wind. Now, we'll touch on this man very soon because mm-hmm. he is crazy. There were even rumors that went around that he was pro-Nazi, and we'll go into detail about his his treatment towards Judy Garland on set. There's a rumor that he slapped her on set. He, yeah, and MGM still kept him, still kept him, you know, on contract to produce more films because he had yeah. a way of direction where it was so accelerated, like get the job done, but do it right. Mm-hmm. And that's why they kept on going through different directors because they kept on lagging in time. They mm-hmm. didn't like really produce what they envisioned the story to look like in walks in Victor Fleming. Well, and that's the thing is that at this time, the hierarchy is the studio execs. And that's not right. necessarily the case as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone really was very expendable in that structure. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it, even the directors, if you listen to some of our older episodes, as we're talking about the misfits right. and we're talking about Marilyn Monroe, right, the misfits, um, rebel without a cause. It's still all these things. And even the directors in those, they were really on the outs as well, of course. Uh, especially in the misfits. But, so the directors in a way were expendable but the hierarchy is that like a man a director Mm -hmm. is a bigger commodity than a woman than an actor than an extra Mm -hmm. so even though you know you're seeing they're going through three directors to get this movie made which is insanity Mm -hmm. that they still have a little bit more loyalty to the director the director has a little bit more power so yeah I 100% believe that he could have slapped her or god knows what else and they probably would have continued because at the end of the day he made the money he did and that's what it at this time and it's still true but the bottom line how much money it always comes back to that it's always a how number. fast and how much money exactly girl and we'll touch on the, that set of cliff notes i am just ready to get on a soapbox i know <laughs> i know you got your purse that you're willing to like swing over your head oh, like a I banshee don't worry, i will <laughs> so the film was a hit mm-hmm. for its songs direction storyline and of course the use of technicolor there was this beautiful scene where we see dorothy opening up the doors Ugh. of her farmhouse and it's all sepia tone 
and she opens the door and it's just this beautiful world of munchkin it's land so iconic it's one of the most pivotal and yeah iconic scenes in film history because of the use of film color mm. and it was such an interesting um transition because back then it you know they didn't have the technology we had back then so mm-hmm. it, everything was hand tinted that scene actually was very unique because it was hand tinted to Insane. maintain the sepia tone. They ha- ended up having to paint the interior of the farmhouse sepia tone. And when you see the character Dorothy opening up the door, I found that, that that's not Judy. That's mm. her stand-in Bobby Cachet wearing a sepia yeah. gingham dress. And then she backs out of frame and Amazing. then enters Judy as Dorothy in this bright, beautiful blue gingham dress. Mm-hmm. I think that is one of the things that we've really lost mm-hmm. with, yeah, you know, you have the incredible advancements of technology. But right. we don't have to use our imagination anymore because they can show it to us. Right. And you look at, like, for example, speaking of color, I always think of the Avatar film. And it's so vibrant and it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. But it's just all CGI. And it's great. I'm not trying to take anything away from that movie. Oh, no. But if you look back, the th- I think one of the reasons why The Wizard of Oz is so iconic, one of the many reasons, is that it's essentially they are almost doing it like documentary style because everything that you're seeing had to be built, had to be moved, had to be created in flesh and blood, not just like, oh, well, we'll just like make a computer program. Mm-hmm. Right? We'll that wait didn't for exist. post-production yeah, and, and you know, our you know editors will... Yeah. Type that in. And no. it's hard because there are pros mm-hmm. and cons to both of them. Obviously, like, you can see all the string, right? Like, right. when you look back, it doesn't hold up in that way. But there's something so insane. I always think of the one scene where they're, like, walking, and you can just see the layers of set for the woods as mm-hmm. they're walking down the road right before she meets the scarecrow. And when you think about that, like, man, they built at least four layers deep. Yeah. Of tree to like really make it powerful and like feel like a dark forest that she's walking through. Or maybe I'm thinking of like when they see the lion and he yeah. like comes through and you see him coming through the trees. Like we, we miss that mm-hmm. a little bit. And it's just so crazy that like, I mean, this film employed such a huge crew, bigger than any crew had ever been right. before because it was so massive in scale because they had to just literally build everything. Right. No, you're right. Have you, I mean, if you ever seen a studio lot, mm. it's the size of a, a football studio. Massive, yeah. It's massive. So you can imagine the amount of workers, especially union workers that are brought in totally. to build this stuff. It's, it's so awesome to see that process, mm-hmm. especially when I'm on set. Oh, I, I yes. go into set and I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, how long did it take them to build this? In two weeks. I'm like, what? It's insane. <laughs> Why? Well, one of the things I was reading is that for the makeup crew, mm-hmm. the Munchkins just had to go through assembly line style because oh, yeah. it was everyone, every member had prosthetic yeah. on set, and so they just had like one person would do like the nose, one person would do the ears, and you oh, just shuffle that's from what station we, to station. It's still like that today. Amazing. It's especially when I'm dressing background. Yeah. Oh, girl, let me tell you about background. Uh, First off, the, they're a unique bunch. We really, we really are. We're the worst. <laughs> We're the worst. I know. But it is assembly line. It's like, okay, what is the color? What are, what scene are you in? Are you, you know, featured? You know, okay, this is what we have to do. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes they, you know, get a little bit on their high horse. I don't like the way this looks like. It has to go with the background. Some of the <laughs> most intense and awkward and worst examples of humanity are extras in films. I, 
some of the stories. Oh yeah, some of the conversations that happen while you're waiting in the extra holding pen, you're like, God, I just wanna die. These people are the worst. Now it's that time of our episode where we get to know the victims mm. as people and not just victims or property of this Hollyweird tale. You might be wondering, victims, property of what? Victims of the mistreatment and the abuse of what we like to call the studio system because mm-hmm. this was really big and into effect. And the abuse of the big five. Mm-hmm. Don't think that everything was beautiful and cheerful on set for such a beautiful movie. There was a lot of dark and ugly going on behind the camera, as we mentioned before, and the way that the big five were handling this process. Mm -hmm. Before we lay the groundwork and hit some bullet points, you have to understand how the golden age of Hollywood ran, and it's nothing like it is today. You see, back then, the industry was darker, negative, and accelerated. There was a need to produce movies, especially with the U.S. coming out of the Great Depression in 38, Franklin Roosevelt making Shirley Temple the nation's cheerleader to boost morale, while requesting and adding pressure to the film studios to make more films. Make more colorful films. Make happy films. Make films that will get people to start spending money at the movies. Hmm. It will boost the economy. Thus enters the studio system stage left and the big five stage right. The studio system, which was used during the period known as the Golden Age of Hollywood, hell, it made up the Golden Age of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. See, this is what it was, guys. It's a method of film production and distribution dominated by a small number of major studios in Hollywood. It consisted of the big five, which were the most leading and profitable studios, such as MGM, RKO, Paramount, Fox, and RCA. Mm -hmm. And then you had the little underdogs, the little three, that's what they were called, which were Universal, United (laughs) Artists, and Columbia. So they were responsible for the- I love that those are the little three. Yeah. So they were- (laughs) Those old things. Those old so-and-sos. They were responsible for making the little rom-coms, the little westerns, Mm. and some B-films. Now, they all had the biggest thing in common, block- Booking, which was a system of selling multiple films to a theater as a unit. Such a unit included five films of um, that was standard practice for most of the late 30s to the 40s. And typically it included only one particular outstanding film, a.k.a., for example, Gone with the Wind, right. The Wizard of Oz. The rest were a mix of lesser quality and B film. As Life magazine wrote in 1957, in a retrospective, on the studio system it wasn't good entertainment it wasn't even art and most of the movies produced had a uniform mediocrity but they were also uniformly profitable Mm. the multi-million dollar mediocrity was the very backbone of hollywood so all in all it meant that it was one fucked up form of monopoly Mm -hmm. or what some like to claim oligopoly Mm. but it wasn't until this may 4th 1948 in a federal antitrust suit known as the Paramount case, brought against the entire Big Five. So the U.S. Supreme Court specifically outlawed block booking, holding that the conglomerates were indeed a violation of antitrust. Now, this whole case was brought into light when word was spreading like wildfire around town with the way the studios were producing and distributing their films, along with the mistreatment of the cast and crews that were involved. Accelerated actions do lead to accelerated consequences, Mm. which is why we see the fall of the Big Five in 1948. 
But even though the studio system came to an end, we see an emergence of other systems that come into play with mm-hmm. TV studios in the 50s, in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And here we are with the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And we will touch on that in future episodes to come. And that's the thing with Hollywood. It's the same song, but it's a freaking different tune. Well, in, I think evil adapts as quickly or quick more quickly mm-hmm. than like justice can keep up with it and that's why it's like an ever evolving battle so it's like yes the studio system quote ended but like those executives didn't go anywhere oh, they just no. changed their tactic mm-hmm. so like fine there's like legislation on the books but <laughs> even the people that were working under them 100%. they this is what they were experiencing so they were like oh so this is how they you know ran the studio so i'm going to go ahead and start my own studio right. and do the same thing and unfortunately yeah. the foundation in my opinion of hollywood will always be a power struggle between those who have power and those who and this is for the world i guess but it really comes to a head in hollywood because everyone who's trying to make it has very little power and the people that have made it the gatekeepers Mm -hmm. they are just exploiting that eagerness in my opinion that desire to be that's why you see so many actors start directing start producing their own oh yeah material because actors don't have that much power and we can see that oh, yeah. and now we keep a coming back to it. A lot of them end up owning their own production houses. Because it's a way to get power in your creative yeah. life. If you just if you just act you have very little say. Even if you're a big name. That is still true. Mm-hmm. You still see if you can get a producing credit that now you start to A, you're making more money but B, that comes with prestige and power unfortunately. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what an industry. I know. What a very interesting industry. <laughs> <laughs> now, this leads us to our first bullet point, and I like to call it sign your name on the dotted line. Mm-hmm. What are you willing to sacrifice to become a star? What are you willing to sacrifice to become property of MGM? We will talk about our grand dame, our girl, baby gum, Judy Garland. Mm-hmm. Bryce will not take us to church, guys. No, no. no. He's going to take us to mother flippin' vaudeville. He is going going to be taking us to vaudeville. There might be, I'm not even kidding, if you stick around long enough, guys, he might get on my dining room table, cross his legs with his heels, put on some red lipstick, and serenade us with some Garland hits. I think that's always a probability. That's always a probability. I'm not not shooketh by it. I'm like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) if you've known him longer like I have, nothing shocking. (laughs) We will also introduce an insert recording of Judy that was sent to us from one of our listeners. I know. So amazing. David Co, our intern Bay. Hello, David. Thank you so much for sending this over. So he sent us a recording of Judy Garland sounding off to give you an example of the hardships she went through growing up. And it's this recording. She's. It's actually a group of recordings mm. that she did. I think it was her. And while she was in her early to mid forties, mm. while writing or coming up with her autobiography, so she was coming up with notes, but she would always like go off on these tangents hmm. and there's this one that he sent us that we'll put um, a clip of just to show you like what was the outcome mm-hmm. of all this mistreatment what it led her to right and that's towards the end of her life so it's like really when everything is at its zenith essentially exactly hmm. now before we touch on Judy Garland we'll be touching on some topics in regards to substance abuse mm-hmm. and mental health disorders now I'm just going to take a side note and take this time real quickly guys to insert this because this is a serious topic Mm -hmm. 
And I know we always press on it on other episodes, but in light of everything that's been happening recently with mm-hmm. the passing of Anthony Bourdain and mm-hmm. recently with Mac Miller, who was the young hip hop artist who passed away a couple of days ago. He was 26 years old. Mm-hmm. He was very talented and gifted and he died due to an overdose mm-hmm. and he was dealing with also mental health issues. So if you or someone you love is um, facing mental and or substance abuse disorders, there is help. Mm. There's the SAMHSA's National Helpline, and it's a helpline that is free. It's confidential. It's open 24-7, 365 days a year. It offers treatment referrals and information, information services in English and in Spanish for individuals and families facing mental and or substance use disorders. You can find more information at www.samhsa.gov. You can contact their number, which is 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. And they are the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration. Hmm. Now, Bryce, take it away with our girl. Yes. Um, So basically... The whole family was living and moved to California. Her father and mother owned a theater. Mm -hmm. And the sort of shtick was that she, as the youngest, would, like, come out for their Christmas special and sing, like, a little verse of whatever Christmas song they were singing that year. And Mm -hmm. so it was her and her sisters, actually. There was three of them. Mm -hmm. And so when they moved out to California, they continued... And really, like, plugged into the vaudeville scene out west, which was kind of in the history of, like, film especially, was the main catalyst for transition. So before... We see this with Charlie Chaplin. 100%. That's the Mm -hmm. perfect example where it's like everything was before was vaudeville. And Mm -hmm. so as, you know, it kind of translates to Broadway a little bit, but Broadway will, like, in this time period mostly be a lot of big show numbers. Showgirls on stairs with fountains behind them. Like, that's very of the era. Oh, yeah. With film, we kind of get a medium that is able to capture the magic of vaudeville Mm -hmm. and the sort of, like, interaction that the audience gets from vaudeville. It's very off-the-cuff. It's very a little dance, a little song, a little acting. It's a lot of variety acts. Um, and film is like the perfect medium for that. So at this time, it's very common to be getting screen tests based on the success of your little like mom and pop vaudeville show, which like is insane. I've always said the most unrealistic part of La La Land is that a producer came and saw Emma Stone's one woman show. That would never happen no. in this era. Like. <laughs> the traffic scene where everyone's dancing on the hoods of their cars will happen before that will happen. Like, no, 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 no. Yeah. No. A lot of my friends who are <laughs> in the industry are like, Bruh. as soon as that happened, he's like, they're yeah. like, really? She came and saw your show. No, no. she didn't. Uh, sorry. Side note. Um, <laughs> but at this time that did happen. Yeah. And so, uh, essentially, uh, Judy Garland gets discovered and has a screen test. She's five. Like, let's just think about that. Mm-hmm. A five-year-old. And they go and see their little, like, vaudeville act. And her and her father are called in, and they sign her on the spot. She's that good, um, even at that young. Unfortunately, she also kind of is in a weird 
in between phase because by the time everything like gets sorted she was in high school she was dancing yeah she was like i think yeah she was 13 when right. they started to really when they start like pour using in. her exactly yeah. so like it was very common you would have a screen test they were always looking for child actors right the success of the kid mm-hmm. shirley temple they're looking for child actors by the time she kind of gets sorted by the studios mm-hmm. she's in an age where they consider her too old to play these child roles yeah, and too young, obviously to play like the leading lady, which like that part honestly surprised me the most because very rarely are like studio executives like, no, she's too young to like sexualize. Like exactly. That's like the one small saving grace that I think this story has is that like they didn't try and force her to be like sexy at such a young age, which kind of shocked me, which is, like such a sad statement no it she was like the middle child of mgm yes like what do we do with her and they really didn't know and so that's kind of out of necessity they start grooming this like girl next door oh my god the grooming process which at the time (laughs) meant something very different like if you think of girl next door now i think it's sort of been what's the word mixed or made murky by the idea of like the manic pixie dream girl Mm -hmm. so in the modern sense like the girl next door is like the 10 who happens to live next door but is like into video games you know what i mean or like into weird like taxidermy or something (laughs) back then that's not exactly what the term referred to Mm -hmm. the way that they would cast these movies uh, there would be the love interest, which was like a leading man and mm-hmm. a leading woman. And then the girl next door was sort of like traditionally yeah. the chubbier, funnier, like kid sisters. His girl Friday. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So kind of as we're saying like girl next door, we don't really mean it in the modern sense of like, I always think of like a Blake Lively, for example. She yeah. kind of plays like girl next door. Like she's approachable or like Zoe Deschanel maybe. Like she's yeah. approachable. She's one of us. Like, no, that's a supermodel. Like, what are you talking about? Exactly. But it's kind of been altered. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't really her experience. They're kind of grooming her to be this, like, funny, My Girl Friday is, like, a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me. <laughs> but to that end, she, you know, she's this amazing talent. They see a lot of potential. And everywhere she performs is met with, like, unanimous praise everyone loves her she's this insane talent but kind of an unknown because they just don't know how to cast her yeah and so that harkens back to along comes a little film called the wizard of oz right um, i don't know if you've heard of it tammy uh no mm. um okay well i'll, I'll show it to it, you sometime what, what it it's a little indie flick uh, it's about a dog yep oh okay <laughs> basically <laughs> um and so again as we mentioned earlier she she is the first choice but and even after she books the role the studio which at this point in film history has so much say that they are making her for example let's just start the list now she's been cast let's enter um Mm -hmm. this is another bullet point guys Um, the mgm makeover and mandated uh makeup slash makeover so she's cast She's just perfect for this role, like mm-hmm. you were saying. Everyone loves her. La la la. Uh, they are unhappy with the way she looks, essentially. Yeah. They think that, and this plagued her her entire career. Oh, yeah. She was constantly being cast younger than she actually was. And so to kind of combat 
that aging process that Hollywood has always been afraid of in women. Um, in Just in this movie, they're having her wear an incredibly tight corset to kind of like cinch in her curves or like maybe uh, press them down, I guess is maybe a better way of saying it. It wasn't like... Oh, yeah, they had to really bind her. Bind, the wardrobe was like, we can't do any yeah, more, yeah. anything else. Like It's mm-hmm. like, of course, because she's developing into a young woman. How dare she? How <laughs> dare she? Um, Can we reverse this? Yeah, no. so they're binding her down. It's very painful. And then, you know, they have her uh, wearing these rubber nose inserts. Oh they were God, like oval yeah. plugs that went into her nose to help shape her nose into like a more... Prominent, more button, yeah. slimmer nose. So she had to like wear those while she's sleeping. And then oh on top of that, so like just appearance-wise alone, they're like oh, we need to, like, make her look a certain way, regardless of the fact that she's talented. Like, no one seems to mind that she's, like, this amazing singer, this amazing actor, but, like, she just doesn't look the way they want her to look, quote-unquote. Yeah. Um, On top of that, there are almost no labor laws, and she's being managed at the time by her parents. And so especially her mom. Her mother especially is especially. very encouraging and they have mm-hmm. her on a like 12 to 16 hour shooting schedule every day. Oh yeah. And so it's such a fast turnover that instead of like going home mm-hmm. or like taking a break, god forbid, <laughs> she just goes to the infirmary and they start administering amphetamines to her to help her sleep. Or, I'm sorry, barbiturates mm-hmm. uh, to help her sleep. And then they give her amphetamines during the day to keep her to keep awake, her up, to keep her on. With gallons of coffee. Yeah, mm-hmm. to, like, get this filming done. So, again, oh the pros and the cons. Like, mm-hmm. for the studio, it's amazing because they're getting these films done in weeks. And it's insane. Because they have the prepackaged Because they deal. have it. And mm-hmm. so, you know... And then on top of it, her mother, everything the studio says, doesn't want to miss out on that paycheck. It's like, yeah, 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 Judy, do that, do that, do that. Mm-hmm. So there's no one on her side, I think, is the first part. And, like, yeah. you know, we've sort of maybe, like, small shout out. We're not saying that she's, like, a victim or a tragic heroine. Like, whatever. What happened to her happened to her. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, like, call her tragic or, no. like, make her seem like she had nothing in her control but there was a lot of people around her pouring a lot of negative energy onto her and telling her this is what you need to do and back then if they said you won't work again that actually meant we always bring that up and it's true because they were all like we mentioned the big five yes they, you, I mean, you literally, you, you were literally done. couldn't. Like, sorry. Someone says that now, and it's like kind of laughable. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> I'll smokes just a cigarette, walks away, starts her own production company. Yeah, girl, I'll, I'll Instagram live this, and like, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's doing all these things, and the shooting schedule, and she's on this like really aggressive cycle of awake, asleep, awake, asleep, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just her. And like, she does, I think, get. A little bit more of it. One of the things also contributing is that at this time, um, Metro uh, Golden Mayer also have the contracts for Ava Gardner, Lana Turner, and Elizabeth Taylor. So they're mm. like these glamorous, mm-hmm. beautiful leading ladies, Cleopatra, you know, all these like. Yeah. And then they kind of put it on Judy Garland that she's like the ugly duckling. Of the studio, and yeah. they tell her that, which is so fucked up. 
It is. And I mean, she's in her teens at this point. Mm -hmm. To tell her that, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, she never was able to escape the Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. She was never able to escape the girl next door image. She was never able to escape the drug addiction that this caused. And she was never able to escape the body image issues that came from this. Oh my God. Remember when I told you about the film? I watched this film when I was young. It was a made-for-TV film by Lorna Luft, her daughter, um, who was the daughter of um, one of her husbands, Sidney Luft. She wrote um, a book called My Life and My Shadows. It's so good. And if you can find, it's a three-part series Mm -hmm. on YouTube. If you just Google Judy Garland documentary, it's my life and my shadows, and there is in in the beginning part of the of the film. It's so well described. You see them sitting her down in front of the stylists, and they're pick like they're really pinpointing every single imperfection on this girl's body. They're putting her. You see the rigorous act of like her grueling work schedule, mm-hmm. and there's a scene you brought up a really good point where she meets the character this girl portraying Lana Turner. And, you know, they kind of like, you know, make a comparison between her and Lana in this film. Mm. And you could just like the actress did such a great job. The one Mm -hmm. that was portraying young Judy. Just amazing. Of how hurt she was because like they're so fixated on Lana. They're so fixated on Elizabeth Taylor. And then she was just like. And you can see even I mean, she. The ugly duckling, as they called her. And even as she got older Mm -hmm. in her like mid to later career, you know, she starts. I mean, she really starts losing some weight. She really, like, embraces, like, her hair is always, like, up. It's very stylized. Mm -hmm. She's very glamorous. All the external makings of, like, a leading lady are there in her, like, mid-career. Yeah. And she herself can't accept it. And America kind of, the industry doesn't accept it. It's, like, this weird vortex where, like... No one will let her age. And so it's like she's constantly being cast as younger. She's constantly being portrayed. And even when she's the romantic lead, it's kind of like in a yeah. a weird, non-glamorous way. And she herself was so insecure and neurotic about it. And yeah. how could she not be? And uh, it just like kind of breaks my heart. Yeah. Because especially at that age, I just think anyone who's that young and impressionable and you have all these people that like your dreams are being handed to you it's like the she loved the story of the wizard of oz apparently like her father used to read the book to her as a child Mm -hmm. so it's like this beautiful film that she finally gets to make it's like her career maker and the price tag of that is the rest of her life because she literally can't escape the side effects of especially the drug and body image and neuroses. Right. And it follows her the rest of her life. And I just find that so, like, heartbreaking. It is very heartbreaking. You see a lot of that heartbreak in her film, A Star is Born. Oh, God, yes. There is this beautiful, I will never forget, I watched this in one of my theater classes in high school, but I never forget the scene. Um, It's the first shot where Norman is forcing her character Esther, Esther to wash off the horrible studio makeup but she objects already convinced that she has an awful face Mm -hmm. and no chin and no nose so Norman only objects to her first comment and Esther finally laughs aloud and at his aggressive but supportive commands there's this part where he starts to peel the wax that makes that gives her like a prominent nose a prominent chin prosthetic yeah yes and then he grabs like the cold cream and like slaps it on her face and wipes it clean and then she finally realizes that 
oh my god this guy unearthed my natural beauty mm-hmm. and extra something that stars have and has forced her to see mm-hmm. you know what I mean and girl I'm so excited for the Lady Gaga remake I can't <sighs> even contain it I know I'm every gay stereotype but girl I, know, I, I look they better not disappoint I Bradley Cooper was I think he was the co-director and main it's producer. Fir- it's his directing yeah. debut, and he better not fuck it up because girl, Barbara Streisand. I know, mm. I know. But here's the thing: <laughs> you put a movie with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, and I'm there. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> with three Trentys. Oh yeah. Well, no, actually, I don't. You want to hear a little? Here's a little fun fact about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't drink coffee during movies because I don't like having to get up to go to the restroom <laughs> and miss parts of the movie. My husband and I would always sneak in our iced coffees. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I used to, and then I was, like, missing plot points. I, so I don't drink when I watch no, movies. No, I hold it. I'm like, mm-mm, I'm going to hold it. So I have such a little squirrel bladder. I really can't. Yeah, it's the one place that I don't drink coffee. Isn't that insanity? Mm-hmm. But I will have a soft pretzel. <laughs> Goals. Life is about balance, Goals. y'all. Yep. I know. The heart wants what the heart wants. It does. It wants a pretzel. Mm. Yes. Anyway, well, that has okay, nothing sorry. to do with We're anything. Just like... <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't it have something to do with everything? Uh, it does. Uh, so I that I think we can definitely kind of put a pin in it. I, I, we want to talk about some of the other people that were in the movie as well. Oh, yeah. So that leads because us... Because she's not the only one. No. That's what's so fucked up is no. that she really does get the brunt of it. She gets the biggest brunt of it. And she... I mean, you even mentioned it too, what Louis B. Mayer was even calling her. The... My little hunchback. hunchback. What a fuck. He's a son of a bitch. Mm-hmm, they all were. He is this son of a bitch. Like, he... There were even like um, accusations that came into light that he even sexually abused mm-hmm. her. I would not he be groped surprised. her. Oh yeah, he Look, was. A, Harvey Weinstein oh. wasn't the first one to invent this game. No, no. He inherited a culture where that was acceptable. He That's just happened a good way to be of the one. It. A lot of these people learn from these big wigs, 100%. and they inherited all of their doings. A hundred percent. You look at all these people: they Harvey Weinstein, okay. Brian Singer, mm-hmm. any of these people that are being accused. They didn't invent this. They were given permission from decades before. Mm-hmm. They stand on the shoulders of their previous attackers. Like, they no, do. no. Mm-mm. This leads us to what? Uh, this leads us to our another uh, bullet point: suffering mm. for the craft, dangerous makeup. Oh yes. Oh yes. So suffering from the craft for the craft, suffering for the craft. There was asbestos everywhere. I mean, I told Tammy, I told you this before, I was like writing my little notes and then I had to stop and print out the whole section about the makeup in The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. because it's so widespread this and insane. I couldn't write intense. fast enough. I was like, I just got to print this. Yeah. Like, girl. It's a tense. So there was asbestos everywhere. There was everywhere. a scene where the Wicked Witch was putting our heroes to sleep with a spell. They fall asleep in the field of full of poppies and then snow starts to fall on them. Only that's not snow. That's falling on them, guys. It's asbestos. What the hell? Pure asbestos, too. Not even the stuff that's processed and used for building materials, but still considered massively dangerous. Nope, nope, nope. Proc- not processed at all. They were covered in with what's officially called chrysotile asbestos fibers. And at the time, that wasn't odd. It wasn't odd. Asbestos was often used to s- simulate fake snow, even in department stores during Christmas 
And, you know, that brings the whole new meaning to telling little Timmy not to eat the freaking snow. Girl. Please don't eat cancer, Timmy. Little Timmy, don't eat the cancer. Ugh, he's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to do what the heart wants, what the heart mm-hmm. wants. All right. Do you know what else had asbestos? The Wicked Witch's Broom, for one thing, and part of the Scarecrow's costume for another. That's right. Ray Bolger was dancing around in asbestos under falling asbestos, not even knowing he was giving mesophilioma the old, like, middle finger. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He ends up dying from cancer at the age of 87. Gee, I I wonder how and why. Yeah, that's, like, still a very long life, so that's, like, thank God. But the fuck? Stop putting asbestos on people i know and that was the thing they didn't care it was they for did a f- not it was care. for effect now suffering for the craft dangerous makeup the cowardly lion and scarecrow masks were made of foam latex makeup made by the makeup artist jack don who was one of the first makeup artists to use this technique yes. of foam latex now the actor who played the scarecrow was left with permanent lines around his mouth and chin from his mask that's insane it took one hour bryce for them to slowly peel the glued on mask from Bolger's face. No, thank you. Let me tell you about this process with the feature film, the horror film I worked on mm-hmm. last year. We had a lot of prosthetics. Oh, yeah. And I remember the makeup artists always telling us, yeah, it's going to take an hour. It's going to take an hour to get her out of makeup. It's going to take an hour to peel that makeup off. Damn. It's, it's intense. So Margaret Hamilton, as we ex- mm-hmm. uh, described it before, received severe burns on her hands and face when there was an accident with the fire while filming her exit from Munchkinland. Mm-hmm. Her exit consisted of a concealed elevator that was arranged to lower her below the stage as fire and smoke erupted to dramatize and conceal her exit. Now, the first take ran well, but in the second take, the flames did not go out in time. The flames set fire to her green copper-based face paint causing third-degree burns on her hand and second-degree burns on her face. Jesus Christ. Hamilton's makeup was so toxic that makeup artists used acetone as a makeup remover due to the toxicity of the copper inside of it. We also use acetone to remove paint and stain from our sets. But this wasn't makeup. This was a paint. Yeah, this is a body. This is a body. They're like, just get it off of her. Use whatever it takes. Even, you know, use a sander. Whatever it takes. But in this case, due to Hamilton's burns, makeup artist Jack Young had to remove her makeup with alcohol instead to prevent infection. Ouch. This is like right after she gets burned they have to oh, remove yeah. the paint they're not gonna stop filming no 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 <laughs> grow up <laughs> but all i have to say is boss this yeah. girl was like just just like take care of me handle it just mm-hmm. just do what you got to do she spent three months healing before returning to work she ended up wearing green gloves on because they couldn't reapply the makeup onto her hands that's where she got the worst brunt oh, of it my God. since they were still healing from the burns she refused to do any more scenes with the use of fire in enters her stunt double Betty Danko. Don't think that she didn't get any injuries because she got the worst of it too. Girl. She would soon meet a similar fate while shooting the broom sky riding scene. Long story short, she had to ride a broomstick that had a pipe that was filled with fire and it exploded, sending Danko to the hospital for 11 days. Danko ended up receiving permanent scars on her legs as a result from the accident and refused to work with fire in future work projects. Oh my god. Guess who was directing this? Guess who was directing both of these scenes? Just take a while again. I don't know. 
Victor Fleming. Oh, my God. Cool, 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 cool. I'm telling you, this man is crazy. Yeah. But they still kept him on, even though these people were getting hurt. They were getting burned. They were getting slapped. Those are all, like, within the margin of error. Mm -hmm. It's just their lives. It doesn't stop right there. The Tin Man's costume was made of leather-covered buckram. And the oil used to grease his joints in the movie was actually made of chocolate syrup. Mm, The least toxic thing. According to most sources, 10 days into the shoot, Epson suffered a reaction to the aluminum powder makeup he wore. He was hospitalized in critical condition and subsequently was forced to leave the project. In a later interview that was included in one of the DVD releases of The Wizard of Oz, Mm. he recalled the studio heads appreciated the seriousness of his illness only after seeing him in the hospital. Filming halted while a replacement for him was found. Now, no full footage of him was um, as him as the Tin Man has ever been released. Only photographs taken during filming and makeup test photos. Hmm. His replacement, Jack Haley, simply assumed he had been fired. But author and screenwriter George McDonald Frazier offers an alternative story, which is more believable, told to him by Burt Lancaster's producing partner Jim Hill that Epson had refused to be painted silver and was fired. I believe it. I I honestly do. Epson would continue to have breathing problems for the rest of his life due to this. Then Haley, who was the replacement, Mm -hmm. gets an eye infection from the aluminum paste. Oh, we're not going to use powder. Let's use the paste that was used as a substitute to the powder and production was delayed once again for seven days with Haley hospitalized. Oh, my God. Also, I heard that because of the way the suit was actually like made with metal mm-hmm. and so he couldn't sit down because the suit would get damaged and so they would just let him lean up against a board oh what the my hell god that leads me to the cowardly lions yeah, girl. <laughs> look i am a costume designer and let me tell you about this mm-hmm. all right now the, the lion's costume was made of real skin of real lion skin which is that alone is <sighs> insane and fur that w- that weighed about 60 pounds. Damn. The idea was to have three different costumes so that the actor Bert Lart can swap them out during filming. But the unique patterns of the unique lion hide made that impossible since every costume would look different. It's mm. true. You always have to have replicas on set just in case if, you know, the actor one day is eating in costume and spills something on mm. costume. There's always one Don't. or two on standby. Don't do that. So Lara ended up with one costume that would quickly fill up with sweat under the studio lights. And Ugh. it became such a problem that the studio needed to make one hell of an expensive purchase. They ended up buying an industrial drying bin to dry the costume every night the end of shooting can you imagine what that costume smelled like they did not have febreze they did not have a lick of febreze Mm -mm. nothing that was introduced at the time and i can imagine what wardrobe was going through because i go through this all the time with costumes i know those lights are so brutal and when the performer has been in that costume all day girl grab your gas mask wear some latex gloves and pray that that performer mm-hmm. was wearing either deodorant or had taken a shower that day before shooting. Which like, probably not. No, I can tell you this from my experience. No. Yeah. We've had, I, I mean, my department has faced a lot of surprises that mm-hmm. you'd be surprised. Even actresses have left behind. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting. Stinky little peats. Yeah. Oh, um, yes. I also saw that he... The Cowardly Lion and the Wicked Witch, they were both on 
uh, juice only diets because yes. her makeup was super toxic, so she couldn't eat. eat. Yeah. So they could just feed her through a straw. Oh, yeah. And his, because of the latex, he couldn't, like, chew the way, like, it was. So he was also on a liquid diet mm-hmm. as well. He eventually, because he had more scenes. Yeah. If you watch The Wizard of Oz, it's funny. The Wicked Witch is not in that many scenes. No. Part of that is because of all the injury. Mm-hmm. Carry on. Uh, <laughs> but he, after, I think I saw it was, like, six or seven months. Yeah. He renegotiated and made it so that he didn't have to put the makeup on until after lunch because he was tired of eating, like, juice and milkshakes. Yeah. Which, like, I get. I feel. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. Imagine the amount of weight they lost. I mean, best diet ever, but still, like, yeah, you just have to wear a deadline to do it. I know, girl. I'm not sure about all that. The smell of that fur. Oh, as soon as I read (laughs) that, I can. I smelled it in my mind immediately. I was like, I know exactly what that smells like. Yeah, I've had to work with real pieces of fur for a production once. Oh no! Per the direction, director's request. Disgusting. By the end of that, like that whole process of like, I don't, I don't even want to touch fur again. I was in a. Game of Thrones musical spoof called Winter is Coming and we oh, had yeah for Hollywood Friends. Yeah, it was really cool and the costumes were honestly immaculate. They did such a good job. Mm-hmm. But it was like the same thing. Layers of like pleather and faux fur capes and they were I mean they oh. were genuinely beautiful. Like, no, the I saw the pictures. Um, I, saw, I was like, "Damn, who's the designer?" They like, crushed it. They were really amazing. here she really crushed it. It yeah. was actually a a pair um, and one guy one girl and they were amazing I loved working with them I really enjoyed that entire experience but it was July in Los Angeles and if any of y'all have seen Game of Thrones you know that it takes place in the winter yeah of the certain like certain areas of it take place in like yeah. on the wall in winter. Winter, so we're wearing coming, like layers and layers yeah. in July, and then being like, "It's so cold out!" Like sh- shuffle up by this fire. It's like I'm gonna die. And <laughs> as Bryce wipes the oh, gallons crust. of sweat from his forehead, <laughs> those leather vests were and the weight. I can imagine rank. the weight. They were pretty bad. Yeah. All right. So let's separate fact from fiction. Let's do it. Let's do it now. We're going to talk about the Munchkins. Mm. Mm. Now, there were rumors that the Munchkins were the most difficult talent to deal with and wrangle on set. There were rumors that they were alcoholics who held drunken orgies and had loose hands. <laughs> oh, my God. That is the best. Terrible. Especially when it came to Judy Garland. There were rumors that some of them groped her. That no. They, they, did, they slipped their hand under her <gasps> skirt. There were rumors about this. So there were also rumors that they were wrangled. <laughs> this is so bad. That they were wrangled on set with butterfly nets stop that is so ridiculous (laughs) now these rumors were false as described by the last surviving munchkin mickey carroll the munchkins were actually made up of a troupe of european vaudeville actors called the singer midgets mickey carroll was not a part of this troupe having been born in st louis and was one of the few munchkin actors who was english speaking Mm. which meant he was the most featured munchkin on the film, and he also offered his voiceovers for the Lollipop Guild, Follow the Yellow Brick Road song, and Auntie M shouting fits during the tornado scene when her voice wasn't loud enough for um, the shoot. Wow. Now, Carol was the last surviving munchkin who had passed in 2009, and he passed at the age of 89. Mm. Now, let's lead into the creepier aspect of the munchkins. 
there is a rumor mm. going on about a hanging munchkin. This is probably the second most popular <sighs> legend and rumor about the Wizard of Oz. This legend I would that say. came out in the 80s during VHS. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the use of VHSs. So there is a claim of a lovelorn actor portraying one of the munchkins that hanged himself on set during the filming of The Wizard of Oz. And it's true. Just kidding. No, it's not. Ah, <laughs> Got you. Got gotcha. you. <laughs> I found this kind of offensive for these poor little people that had so many horrible rumors surrounding them. I mean, again, if we go back <laughs> to the hierarchy yeah. at this time, right. being a person with disabilities will probably get you a lot of work in a way, but mm -hmm. it's going to be a specific kind of work, and it's not going to be very fulfilling. It's going to be a lot of demeaning. You're going to be a munchkin. You're going to be... It's not ever going to be like a lead, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and that's still true in the industry today. Like, you look at the way that people who are differently abled, he said, not knowing the exact <laughs> term, but if you look, it's still a struggle to get people in roles that aren't just because they are a little person or overweight is another good example or skin color or literally anything. Mm -hmm. We still fight that. The right. stereotype, but at this time in the hierarchy, these actors who were playing the munchkins were the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, they were. They really were. And a lot of these accusations were false. Mm -hmm. They were just made up. But the so-called munchkin suicide scene in the film occurs at the very end of the Tin Man Woodsman sequence as Dorothy, the Scarecrow, and the Tin, uh, no, the Woodsman um, head down the road on their way to the Emerald City. Mm. Now, the sequence begins with Dorothy and the Scarecrow trying to pick up fruit from the talking apple trees, encompasses their discovery of the rusted Tin Man and their encounter with the Wicked Witch of the West, mm. who tries to set the Scarecrow on fire and ends with the trio heading off to Oz in search of the wizard. Now, no one munchkin or otherwise anyone, for that matter, died on set during the filming mm. of this cinematic classic, much less in a cut that was used in the finished version of the movie. Now, to give the indoor set um, used in the Oz sequence a more outdoors feel, several birds of various sizes were borrowed from the mm. Los Angeles Zoo and allowed them to roam around the set. At the very end of the sequence, as the three main characters move down the road and away from the camera, one of the larger birds, often said to be an emu, but more probably a crane, standing at the back of the set, moves around and spreads its wings. No munchkin, no hanging, just a big-ass bird, guys. Which I find more terrifying. Birds I really know. creep me out. And there are pictures. There are pictures that you can clearly see a beak and wings. Now, the scene in question was noticed years ago, and it was often attributed to a stagehand's accidentally being caught on set after the camera started rolling, or more spectacularly, a stagehand falling out of a prop tree into the mm. scenes. With the advent of home video, viewing audiences were able to rewind and replay the scene in question, view it in slow motion, and look at individual frames in the sequence, all on screen smaller and less distinct than those of theaters. Yeah, like let's not pretend that they're doing some like CSI work here. I this know. is like <laughs> 80s VHS. Like I used to rewind all my VHSs too and you can't see shit when no. that happens. No, and tracking, tracking, yeah. tracking. Yeah, oh God, the little blurry lines. <laughs> are, like come on, come And on. imaginations definitely ran wild. Sure. There was even videos that you, people claimed to see a figure hanging. That was all digitally 
like manipulated. Yeah. It's all fake. Mickey Carroll confirms this legend to be false because he stated that they were not even called onto set that day. <laughs> Only the leads were called that day along with the animals from the zoo. The munchkins were not even in town during that sequence. And yet it will not die. <laughs> it's it will so not bizarre. Die. It's been refuted by so many people and it will not oh die. Oh my God. But here's another big gallon of tea here. I love tea. We call it the Wizard of Oz? The Lush of Oz? Question mark? Actor Frank Morgan, who played five different roles in the film. He played the Professor Marvel, the Crying Gatekeeper, the driver behind the horse of of a different color, and the Wizard's Guard, and the Wizard himself. These were all the roles he played. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't just his acting chops that got him through an arduous schedule. The first day Morgan was scheduled to film his scenes, he carried a briefcase onto set with him and it did not carry paper and it did not carry his script it actually carried a mini bar hilarious ray bulger who played yeah it's it's funny ray bulger who played the scarecrow even stated in an interview no matter how many times he retreated to that black briefcase he was never less than a gentleman although when he tried to stop drinking he was often short-tempered and irritable at one point during shooting victor fleming instructed him to drink more due to the fact that he was more tolerable to handle on set when he was drunk as opposed to when he was sober hilarious the ca- <laughs> again yeah. the industry garbage at this time it is garbage it, it was yeah just keep drinking that's fine garbage now there was also a rumor that victor fleming slapped judy garland on set this is true Damn. It, I mean, like we said, the 1930s weren't a good time to be a woman in Hollywood. Heck, the 30s weren't a good time to be a woman anywhere. Sure. And Judy Garland found that the hard way in a whole bunch of horrible ways, as we described on set. Now, the Wizard of Oz final director, Victor Fleming, was the mastermind behind Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. He had very powerful friends and was known for bullying his actors to get the performances done his way. Uh, when Garland kept laughing at the cowardly lion's bluster and bravado act, he didn't just stop filming and call for a retake. Oh, no, no, no. That wasn't his style. He actually grabbed Dorothy, pulled her off of the yellow brick road, and slapped her across the face and said, now go in there and work. Yeah. That's not nice. And the laughing ceased. Imagine if that happened on set today. Imagine the outrage. I mean... I feel like there's there would either be instant. I mean, think, I think now there would be instant outrage, but I think even five years ago, even today, there probably are sets where like something similar has happened, and everyone just kind of like turns a blind eye and mm-hmm. moves on. And, they don't want to get involved. And yeah, if the person, the victim, doesn't make a stink about it, doesn't want to make a stink, yeah, it probably still does happen. Like mm-hmm. that, that does not surprise me at all. Yeah. I'm just also curious to know what the cowardly lying was saying to her in her ear. Yeah. To make her laugh uh, well, so hard. Allegedly, you know? if you kind of, again, like who can say with like replay and all that, but right. you can kind of see her crack a little smile mm-hmm. because like she still can't like full on keep it together because no. he's so good he and he's so like cute the way he's like mm-hmm. being tough. But like you can kind of see her like crack a little. Right. I'm like, yeah, good for you, girl. Like, fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't get to slap you. You don't get to slap you. So um, this leads us to this, guys. Um, what ends up happen- happening to our baby gum? So it seemed like she was chemically trained by these studios. Mm-hmm. And that was contributed by, you know, the control and demands of MGM. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but, you know, later on, Judy Garland does gain more notoriety for her live stage and television performances in her later years. And she had been married how many times? Like three or four times. Yeah. I mean, she led a very ambitious but very short-lived yeah. life. So it's insane because she kind of goes through these, like, multiple resurgences where, like, you know, she kind of gets a reputation because mm-hmm. she's, you know, as we've talked about in so many episodes now, once you are addicted to drugs and alcohol and you start becoming unreliable, she went to rehab several times. Right. But eventually the studio stopped wanting to work with her and kind of write her off. Oh, yeah. And she ends up... Um, you know, there's a couple minor suicide attempts, mm-hmm. possibly misunderstandings where, like, she scratched herself and people blew it out of the water and said she, like, slashed her own neck yeah. and slashed her wrist. Oh, yeah, the media was amazing during yeah, this time period. still is. <laughs> um, but she, you know, she has all these revivals. You know, she kind of goes back to her vaudeville roots. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she, she's, does tours. she is a huge name. Everyone knows her from... The Wizard of Oz. So she, you know, she wins an Oscar. She's winning a Golden Globe. All it's like she is famous. So she goes on these tours, and the one in the UK in particular mm-hmm. was so good that she wins an Emmy, mm-hmm. um, or I'm sorry, a, a Grammy. Oh wow! She's one of the first women to win Album of the Year. Amazing. Because of her contributions and bringing vaudeville back into like the main, like artistic viewing um and from that she then like relaunches her career not that it really went anywhere she was still doing films but they were kind of getting a little bit less successful and then she like reinvents herself by doing the live performances and at the same time they start showing uh for television screenings of Uh the wizard of oz so while she simultaneously is getting more and more like of a comeback yeah the wizard of oz starts becoming a yearly tradition that people view and it's sort of like a holiday tradition and other I think like at one point like Dick Van Dyke and like his kids and they talk about it like it's like a holiday special tradition so it's becoming the Wizard of Oz is becoming part of our social consciousness and Mm -hmm. like our collective experience and she has her own show at this point and she's appearing on all these guest shows and again it's back to this incredibly grueling filming schedule mm-hmm. with all the television all the live performances all the live appearances she's in a lot of debt at this point yes so she's like doing some some insane number like 90 shows on one of her tours like that is such a high number for mm-hmm. a single per like a single act yeah and so again she falls back into the drugs the pills the exactly. alcohol at this point and it's just so heartbreaking like she is just a constant roller coaster of like career success in a direct inverse relation to her mental stability mm-hmm. as that decreases in order to maintain the grueling schedule of her professional life. Yeah, so her sad. professional life, her marriage. She's yeah. also a mother. She yeah. has three children. Um, of course, one of her famous ones, Liza Minnelli. That old so-and-so. That, and, and Lorna Love. Yes. She becomes a big figure in theater as well. Totally. And she also writes her biography, as I mentioned, in My Life and My Shadows, yes. which is really, I highly recommend yes. you go watch it. so good. Um, our girl Judy Garland dies in London at the age of 47, victim wow. of an overdose to prescription medication. Uh, it's so sad. It's really, really sad. So real quickly right now, what we're going to do is just insert this um, clip of hers mm, just yes. to give you guys an idea of the struggles of this woman, mm-hmm. like where her mind was at this time. And it, it, this really 
God, this really hit me hard. Like there, I, I know like we've researched, you know, some very famous actresses, but this one was the one that I had to stop and like mm. almost burst into tears yeah. because you just hear it in her voice. The yeah. pain. So real quickly, this is um, a recording of Judy. I want to say when she was in her mid forties, just three years before her death. Ah. And this was a recording that one of her writers would make, um, helping her write her autobiography. Mm -hmm. So here it is. I'm the one who's had delivered me. I don't want to hear any resentment from anybody else now about how difficult I am. And I don't want to pick up a paper and read how unfit a mother I am when I have three marvelous children who seem to take and have always loved me. Fat, thin, funny, sad. They think I'm pretty good. I think they're great. I have love and have never planned revenge. However, however this book turns out is because of I am the result of an audience, of a critic, of critics, of what people have made me. And in the meantime, there's been another whole human being, myself, that hasn't been even interesting enough to write good stories in the newspapers that would be printed. They weren't, and they're not interested. I, I'm a good cook. I am a good mother. I do believe in going to church. I love music. I love a lot of things that the people around me that have surrounded me all my life, all my 44 goddamn marvelous failing successful and hopelessly tragic and starlit years i've been surrounded by people who were not in my league they were the disbelievers now they're going to have to put up with their names being printed they better not too because i'm only going to write it the truth but in the meantime how do i find the true Judy Garland or Francis Garland or whatever. Okay, so that is um, one of her many recordings where she goes off Insane. the tangent. I know. And I think you said it perfectly is that you can hear the pain. And like, right, you can say like, oh, well, she's clearly on something. She's clearly mm-hmm. having a breakdown of some kind. And that, that very well is true. Like, mm-hmm. obviously there's other external factors affecting this energy that she's ranting right but you can just hear like the raw nerve of emotion that she is and it's just so hard to listen so hard to listen to right and 47 she dies in this recording she sounds like she's in her 80s like she sounds very old yeah and it just goes to show you like what this industry Mm -hmm. It to her and the toll and everything it took on her voice and her image everything like if you see pictures of her towards the end of like of her life like she look she doesn't look like she's 47 no and that's such a weird thing because mm-hmm. like she always was not perceived as her age they were always trying to make her younger yeah she looked so much older because of the drugs and alcohol and the lack of sleep mm-hmm. it's just like sort of sad 
It was very sad. So that's like what she was marred by. Yeah. Meh. All right, guys. So that was the that was the dark secrets in history mm. of the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. We're going to segue into the paranormal aftermath. There were none. Goodbye. Bye. Oh no. Okay. Great. <laughs> cool. 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 Do we have Judy Garland ghosts? Ooh. It turns out we do. Oh my god. We have some ghosts, guys. You're never going to believe where Baby Gum is uh, has been reported being seen. So it turns oh out god. we have a Judy Garland sighting at the Palace Theater in New York City, located in 1564 Broadway. Considered to be the world's most famous and premier performance theaters from its opening in 1913 until the 30s, anyone who was anyone played the palace. Many people have performed here, including our Harry Houdini, Bob Hope, Frank Sinatra, the biggest diva of them all, Diana Ross, Mm, Harry Belafonte, and our girl, Judy Garland. There are enough ghost sightings surrounding this place to fill the theater from even former patrons to performers. This theater is haunted as fuck in New York City. Great. Now, the ghost of Judy Garland is said to have made its way back from over the rainbow and has been spotted near a private door formerly used by the performer. Her presence is seen and even felt near a door that was built especially for her at the rear of the orchestra for her entrances and exits for one of her most famous tours, the Get Happy Tour. Uh, Yes. Mm. I'm going to let me sidetrack. I have to take a minute. Yeah, girl. That risque blazer. Yeah. That fedora. Ugh, yes. The red rouge and those legs for days. I know. Right? That's the hunchback. Like, come on. Like, grow fuck up. you, Louis yeah. B. Mayer. Sorry, but yes. That's a woman. Mm-hmm. That is what you call woman right there. I just want to, like, take a also sidebar and mm-hmm. really congratulate myself for not singing a single song. I can see you kind of twitching. It's really hard. But I want to, like, make sure this entire episode gets aired. If I and start not... singing, I you start singing? <laughs> if, if you do, I won't be able to stop, but I want to make sure. No, don't, no. <laughs> That's not going to clear. <laughs> We get a call. Um, we can't produce this. I know. I just, <laughs> yeah. Loss. We're really doing mm-hmm. it though, Peter. We're doing it. So a lot of people have seen what looks like a young or middle-aged woman running in and out of the doorway as oh. if she's ready to go on stage and do a performance. And that's true because the reason why she asked for this door to be built by the orchestra was so that she could see the audience from that, you know, that section mm-hmm. of the stage and for her quick changes. Damn. Yes. And there was even rumors that she, you know, would exit off stage to take a little break pop a pill or two that was also a rumor but people have seen what looks like the figure to be of a a woman in her middle age you know running in and out they even see like what seems to be a black figure kind of you know standing in the doorway no one's supposed to be there no one's even backstage yeah oh god according to haunted minnesota ghosts and strange phenomenon of the North Star State by Charles A. Stansfield, it appears that our baby gum, Judy, is felt and seen in her hometown of Grand Rapids. Mm. In Stansfield's book, a woman by the name of Marie recounts several encounters with the Wizard of Oz starlet. It all started when Marie took a job at the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids. Marie was a fan of the acclaimed actress and singer. Now, here's a side note. The Judy Garland Museum is actually located in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, and it's the childhood home of Judy Garland or Francis Gum. 
It houses the world's largest Judy Garland and Wizard of Oz collection. Damn. Now, as an FYI, thank you to our listener, Erica Schultz, who... Hi. Hi, girl. She sent us this article. I love it when our listeners do, do this. I do, too. That's so cool. They're like our intern bays. I love it. If you do that, guys, we will give you a shout out for sure. David Co. Erica Schultz, thank you. You guys are the best. You are. So this is the place where the iconic ruby slippers Judy Garland wore in the film The Wizard of Oz mm. had been stolen, <gasps> and a few days ago, finally recovered 13 years later damn bryce don't act like that i know you took them and you finally returned them they're a little stretched out it's called borrowing <laughs> it's fine <laughs> the heart wants what the heart wants. yes yeah. no i'm actually terrible at walking in heels so. <laughs> that's why you were you were always sitting a lot at work mm-hmm. i noticed yeah that. that's why huh. yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> So 13 years after they were stolen, Grand Rapids Police Department in Minnesota and the FBI announced Tuesday the slippers, one at, of at least three existing pairs used while shooting the film, have been found and recovered. So thank you, Erica, you know, for sending us this that article. That I, I remember reading updates. that. I know. Right before we did this recording, man. Damn. Well, according to Marie, it seems that she has seen what looks like it's so sad to be a tiny figure that could be described as little baby gum, a.k.a. Judy. The little girl will always appear in the garden outside of the museum or home. The little girl is described to be dressed in white, looks between the ages of four and five. She's a happy presence, often heard laughing and singing. Hmm. No mystery as to why Judy's spirit would materialize as a four or five-year-old, for she is you know, most likely celebrating one of the most happiest phases Mm. of her life, unlike the life that was later burdened by many tribulations in her teenage and adult years. Mm. And I feel like that's true. The reason why she goes back to the palace where she's felt there, that was her happiest. That makes, yeah. She was her happiest. And even in Lorna's book, like Mm -hmm. she lived for that. She loved her audience. Yeah. She really did. And I could see why she came back to these places. Sure. That's where she really felt her like herself. Yeah. Now there seems to be a haunted Munchkin hotel, guys. Stop. Oh my god. In Culver City, there is a hotel right across the street from the Culver Studios, which is also haunted as fuck. And it's the historical six story hotel that is known as the Culver Hotel, which is a national historic landmark and Culver City's answer to the New York's flat iron building the hotel is a major time warp and i felt as though i I stepped back in time when i stuffed my face with truffle fries and down a glass of pinot yeah last year while visiting but it's a (laughs) the heart wants what the heart Mm -hmm. wants and if it wants truffle fries and a glass or two of pinot it's going to get it or 10 or 10 but this is a beautiful hotel guys if you ever travel to culver Mm. city it is a time warp you can see jazz sets cool they have a jazz piano bar it's amazing so the reason why it's called the munchkin hotel despite the fact that it is a small building in the middle of downtown culver is that the munchkins from the wizard of oz slumbered here there was rumored that three of them slumbered in one bed at a time in the 30s so did about every major mgm star in town for business during hollywood's golden age they stayed at this hotel Mm -hmm. now originally called hotel hunt and it it was used as a center for selling real estate the hotel was decidedly less glamorous when it first opened its doors in 1924 with much smaller rooms a hundred at a time half the size of current accommodations with bathrooms just located down the hall Mm, Mm, communal bathrooms but many believe that the hotel co-founder Mr. Harry Culver is still taking care and watching over the hotel and the afterlife. 
According to general manager Seth Horwitz's interview with Pasadena Weekly, it appears that Mr. Culver still roams around the hotel of his office, and his offices were on the second floor. And since his death in 1946, it's said that his staff members occasionally Mm-mm. see his ghost wandering around and hear the windows in his personal office bang shut unexpectedly. Why do spirits do that? We mentioned this with the Pantages, mm, yeah. with RKO, with with um, with um, Howard Hughes, mm-hmm. like banging of the doors in their office desks, banging of doors. It's like, where is my number two pencil? Why do I keep yeah. on <laughs> my, being ignored? Yeah. My guess is that because, like, I think the most likely explanation is that, like, if a energy or a spirit is, like, experiencing what it would consider, like, its timeline, mm-hmm. right, at either the height, like, for example, these people that are in their businesses, like, they're oh, yeah. experiencing life, if you will, as a normal work day. And it's because they're not in time with right. like the current timeline, and we are perceiving them in our timeline. Right. And so I, I assume it's always so abrupt, always so like banging, because they're like, well, why the hell is my window open? It's the middle of the day, and the air's on, and they like slam it shut. Mm-hmm. But for us, it's like nine o'clock at night, and the window wasn't open in the first. You know what I mean? Oh, that's true. So I think it's like because there's two timelines, maybe. Mm-hmm. I'm just wildly speculating. No, that, so, that is a good yeah. speculation, and I'm sure that there are articles written about it well, that I, they're in yeah. a different time zone that like we mentioned in the Winchester Mansion episode where there are several forms of hauntings there's intelligent there is um, residual there is animal poltergeist and demonic and for this one it could be residual or it could be intelligent where he's in his own time frame where he's in his own timeline and that's why like they can walk through walls right it's not that ghosts gain superpowers no 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 no. if there was a hallway right in your life Mm -hmm. and you're walking through that hallway but it then gets reconstructed and now there's a wall you as the ghost don't see or experience the wall no and you experience the hallway i meant to include that in our last episode Mm. there's a lot of evidence of that with civil war hospitals especially Oh, sure. Of course. Oh, yeah. Especially in Gettysburg. Oh, right. So in Gettysburg. Sorry, I was zero help. I just (laughs) stared at you. We see this. um, We see this in Gettysburg in a lot of areas where there are these um, hospitals that were turned into homes and offices. And there's been cases where people have claimed, well, I keep on seeing this figure walk into my closet, Mm -hmm. walk past my window into nothing. Yes, because at one point there was an extension of that house, and it was an it was a house or is yeah there was an extension in that hospital. They took out that extension, so probably what they're experiencing is a residual haunting. They're probably walking down a hallway that is now a bedroom. Right. You know, there's been so many cases of that. But yeah, I mean, I love reading about those cases. Oh, I want to go to Gettysburg so bad. My husband's like, why do you like doing this stuff? I'm like, because I want to learn. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So one day Horowitz noticed a guest in his mid-30s to early 40s having difficulty opening the second floor exercise room with his key. So he assisted by opening the door. And upon entering the room, no. the hotel, I guess, <laughs> upon entering the room, the hotel guest gasped loudly and said, whoa. Horowitz says, I ran over to the window to investigate, and the man, with the huge look of surprise on his face, said, Oh my God, he's gone. Then the fellow pulled out his phone and started drawing what he saw in that second, which was a man's portrait on this man's phone app. He showed it to the GM. The hair stood up on my arms and neck, Horwich recalled. The image was the spitting image of Mr. 
Mr. Colt for your face. I hate it. Don't bring the phone app into it. No. (laughs) I took the man over to see a photograph of him hanging down the hallway. Then he did what any good GM should do in the situation. He ran and got the man um, a shot of good single malt whiskey. There is no doubt in my mind that the man saw the ghost. I was in the room where it said, adding that the guest told him that the ghost actually looked happy and had a satisfied look on his face before disappearing. That jived with another account given by another guest who had another sighting on another occasion told Horowitz that the spirit was very, very happy with what you've done with the hotel. Oh, that's kind of sweet. Yeah, so this other gentleman who had another account said like he got the sense that this that Mr. Culver, who he thinks he saw, Mm. you know, was very positive and it was almost like he was trying to communicate that he was very happy with the Damn. way that the hotel was running. That's kind of surely it must please the current owner, Maya Malik, who has created such a stylish and fun hotel. And other odd occurrences have included windows opening and shutting, doors opening and closing by themselves, and even the occasional water turning on mysteriously in certain suites. Yeah, Ugh. but the hotel is beautiful. Mm. It is a beautiful hotel. It's definitely great to have dinner there, to catch a jazz show. They even do child-friendly haunted tours. No. Bryce, you want to do one? I, look, if I'm ever going to do one, it will need to be child-friendly. Yes. <laughs> That's the only tour child. Girl, no. Even then, I'd be like, no. no. tunnel tours. I might do a child-haunted tour, so. Oof. But not with haunted children, sorry. No. Girl, No. <laughs> Oof. Right across the street is the Culver Studios, also rumored to be haunted. Ooh. Oh, this is some very big Hollywood tea. So built by Thomas Ince, the Culver Studios is where Gone with the Wind was filmed. Culver Studios, or AKA the mansion, was started by pioneer Hollywood filmmaker Thomas Ince, a man who is considered to be the father of the Western. And the French believed him to be the first the film's first profit, and he hmm. set production ideals to which the industry aspired for many years to come. Never heard of him? Don't worry, you're not alone. Sadly, Ince is remembered much more today for his scandalous death than for his contribution to the art of movie making. Hmm. Ince died in November of 1924 while celebrating his birthday on board a yacht owned by the newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst. The real story of how Ince died will never be known, but Hollywood rumors tell a different and strange twisted story. Supposedly, Ince was accidentally shot and killed by a jealous Hearst, who was aiming for Charlie Chaplin. Stop. But missed. I kept being like, why is this name so familiar? Oh, oh, oh they, they made a movie. Yes. The Cat's Meow. Yes. Why? Well, it was all a fact that um, Hearst was romantically involved with a sweet little thing, an untalented actress by the name Marion Davies, who was also romantically linked to our guy Chaplin. Jesus. However, there were claims that Ince, after drinking and eating too much at the party, died of acute indigestion. And the story stated that he was taken from the yacht and rushed home where he later died. Hmm. Unfortunately for Hearst, there were witnesses on board the Damn. yacht, including Charlie Chaplin's sure. secretary, who saw the bullet hole in Ince's head when he was carried off the ship. Indigestion? I don't think so. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Hollywood scandal or Holly weird scandal? We totes think so. Mm-hmm. 
So that's another big story that we need to cover in the future. Yeah. So according to legend, the ghost of Tommins Ince now haunts his old studio. There have been reports of a man being seen walking past the windows in the front entrance of the studios late at night. Ugh. Security guards have shared tales of what they claim to see after hours is a figure what appears to look like a man in his early to mid 40s in a suit and tie roaming around the building. Ince's second floor office still exists and has an adjacent conference room known as the Boat Room. Studio workers often report seeing sightings of Ince's ghost walking through walls mm. in the mansion, as well as a female ghost in a long, flowing dress. Now, the theater area is also active with claims of phantom voices being heard along with cold spots and strange knocks and banging coming from different areas of the room. Mm -hmm. There are no public tours of this place, but there have been quite a few paranormal investigations in the past that have Mm. collected a few pieces of evidence that are pretty credible. They've collected orbs and pics that were taken in Ince's offices. And in the theater area, one investigator captured what might have been the best EVP of the night of their investigation. So in this EVP, it sounds like the entity in question is saying, is this a breakout? Which might have something to do with the movie lingo back then. Is this a breakout hit? Oh, wow. Yes. So they believe that in the mansion, the most active area is Ince's office and the theater. Mm-hmm. But it's really, really, really haunted. So we have to do that in our future episodes. If I, if I come <laughs> back as a ghost to my place of work, <laughs> I need you to promise me that you will white sage the hell out of it until I leave. Because I don't want to be stuck at work forever. Which, please, go sage yourself. No. Oh, <laughs> God. That please? breaks my heart. He's like, oh. he's always at work. Like, ugh. Uh, I know. Like, you need to take a vacay, bro. Like, yeah. a permanent one. Why does nobody ever haunt the Bahamas? <laughs> They might have some They probably do. Yeah, they probably do. There's some voodoo down there. (laughs) All right, guys. So that is the end of our episode of the Dark Secrets in History and the Paranormal Aftermath of the Wizard of Oz. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you felt. Even let us know. When was the first time you saw The Wizard of Oz? Yes. You know, that's always interesting. Where were you when you first saw the film? How old were you? I don't remember exactly, but I was very, at least Probably like between five and eight. Me too. I watched yeah. it in my grandparents' house in West Virginia. Aww. Yeah. I remember we, my sister and I, we got the movie for Christmas, mm-hmm. and that's I, I can't remember which what year, but I just remembered we got that film for Christmas. We popped it in the VCR, yep. and that tape stayed in that VCR for many months because we were so obsessed with the movie. Yeah, same. I mean, we weren't really allowed to watch a ton of things, so that was one of the ones we were allowed to watch, and that was like pretty we viewed it i mean it i knew good. all the songs it was pretty good me. yeah all and right. then also like as a gay person like <laughs> judy garland is like one oh. of the biggest campiest icons oh my god the community is like obsessed with her so just judy just judy just judy bless all right guys before we hit our spiritual bays of the week your girls got some big news. Yes. We're just going to give you a tease. Mm-hmm. We're going to give you what we like to call a boot tease. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have a big surprise. Yes. For all of you guys. I'm pregnant. I'm sorry. I couldn't keep <laughs> I it I really in. wanted to share that news. I know. I'm sorry. I couldn't keep it in any longer. <laughs> <laughs> they all turn With us my off. my baby. There you go. Yeah. They all turn <laughs> us welcome. off. Like, we're done. That's the line. <laughs> That's it. All right, guys. Well, we have uh, some news. Mm-hmm. In late September, we can give this away. We're yeah. going to be teaming up with LA Not So Confidential yes. for a huge episode. They're so cool. They are so dope as fuck, guys. Seriously, go tune into them. Seriously, we can wait. Hold on. 
All right, done. How dare you leave us? I know, seriously. <laughs> All right, so go check them out. Yes. We're going to be doing something really big with them, with yes. a big movie that was supposedly cursed. You don't want to miss that out, okay? No. Um, but here's the things. October is going to be a big month for October us. October is a big month. Yeah, and it, it, it usually is for a lot of paranormal true crime podcasts. Sure. But for us, it is... We, we just didn't anticipate it to be this large. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It is huge. We have been in talks with several people. We have been in talks with a group. We're not going to say who. Yeah. It, we've been in talks with another show. Mm-hmm. And we look up to them. They are one of our biggest spiritual bays. Yes. I truly love these two. I love this duo. I love what they do, especially in the paranormal community. Yeah. They are amazing, and they reached out to us, and they want us to be a part of their show in October. Yes, which is going to be awesome. Awesome, and um, that's all we're going to leave it at. Yeah. So we have that coming up, but here's the biggest mm-hmm. the biggest news, guys. We're just going to leave little hints, but we still don't know what to do with our hands mm-hmm. or come up with words, so yeah, bear yeah. with us. Um, we had a meeting two weeks ago with a big big California theater. Mm-hmm. They enticed us with tacos, yes. margaritas, and yes. ghost stories. Yes. Oh my God. The big three. You know, I thought that wine and ghost stories paired up so well. They do. They do, but tacos and ghost stories with margaritas, another level. Yeah. Another star level. Yes. So this theater contacted us not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And we included them in an episode, mm-hmm. and they were like, um, everything that you mentioned in that episode is true, Ugh. and we are going to be doing something really, really big with them. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know how to come up with more words, because well, Bryce and I are still in yeah, shock. We're still, yeah, yeah, we're still working we're still out shooketh. the deets, yeah. but so that's part of it. We're being super vague, because yeah. we also are still in the creative laboratory making mm-hmm. it like as amazing as it's going to be yeah but with both of these like upcoming things they are going to be live events so then we'll have yeah. uh episodes of those live events yes. so you're not even, gonna, we're not going to leave you guys out yeah if you're in california we're going to keep you posted because we oh. want to see your little faces my god and if you're not in california we have so many viewers in other parts of the country yes. even a little in other parts of the world asia what mind-blowing so hong kong if you aren't planning on flying to la anytime soon uh-huh. do not fear because mm-hmm. we will have the episodes as well right. of these upcoming live events. Yes. Yes. Guys, it's going to get real. We're going to get october up in here. I know. We're going to be hollow queens. Oh, Let my me God. tell you. <laughs> and everybody else that's listening, you guys are all hollow queens. Yes, you really are. I know. I've been like itching to get my Halloween decor out. Yeah, I'm jealous of other places. We had like 48 hours of autumnal weather here, yeah. and now we're back to the just I'm sweating. Hilly. It's so hot it's right hot. now. <laughs> we had to it's nix so the AC right now. We look so cute in sweaters. I know. Uh, <laughs> <Then> hugs. <laughs> I know. So sad. Alright guys, so if you are dying to know what we're talking about, no pun intended, you're going to have to follow us on our social meads, yes. on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter, guys. 
to figure out what we're talking about, yeah. you're going to have to definitely tune in because we'll be definitely dropping some big ass hints, which leads us to our spiritual base of the week. Let's hey. get this started. We're going to start off with the Hex Files Collective. Love. Explore the dark side of history, art, culture, and crime with a few friends and beautiful host Jennifer Lennox hey. Bay. Check out their podcast and their blog at thehexfilecollective.com. It's a really cool blog. Mm-hmm. It's well organized and they have everything to fulfill your weird delights from true crime, uh, cryptic zoology to the paranormal and supernatural. Go check them out. They're Amazing. so awesome on Instagram and on Twitter. I see you guys. Hi. The second, I love these guys, the ghost story guys. Hi. They're amazing. Somewhere on the border of sleep, there's a little mountain cabin you dream about but never quite reach. From there, authors Brennan Starr and Ian Gibbs explore the dark corners of the world. Join them. Listen to their podcast where they talk about spooks, specters, and everything else watching us from the shadows beyond the cat fire with humor and a dose of critical thinking i love listening to them they also had a really cool episode on la ghost stories cool they really had a cool episode on that so highly i highly go recommend like just to go click on them put them in your queue definitely go do that please if you love holly weird paranormal we'd love for you to subscribe rate and give us a review on itunes it really helps us out a lot and it helps us indie podcasters become a little more visible it really does help us out so can't get enough of Hollyweird Paranormal, then stalk us on Instagram and Facebook at Hollyweird Paranormal and Twitter at HWP Podcast. Have a story that you're dying to share? Boop, boop, boop. No pun intended. Then email us at hollywearparanormal at gmail.com or say you want to send us a couple of articles in regards to an episode that we're yes. going to do. We love that. Amazing. David Co. Erica Schultz, thank you. Guys you guys are the best. That's you so cool. It really, no, it really helped us like, out a lot. Just the fact that you guys even took the time to just like, hey, this might like be something That's you amazing. could use. Yeah, we're going to use it. Because we're going to use it. so we're gonna selfless and kind we're, to like think of us. Yeah. That's so cool. We truly... We truly love getting you guys involved. We truly love getting our listeners involved. That's why we always like to do drawings. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you guys, October, especially for our California listeners, you'll get that chance. Trust me. All right, guys, catch up with past episodes or just link to our um, blog or our you know website on Blueberry.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, CastBox, Player FM, and Spotify. Love it. Love it, guys. All right. We will definitely catch you soon. Bye. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye.